My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds I keep covering up the sun. On this episode of Just a Mom, I have joining me today Dr. Matt Quick. He is the Dean of Students at Rockhurst University in Kansas City, Missouri. Thank you so much for being with us today, Matt. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you, Susie. Thanks for inviting me. So I was telling you, and and I've told a couple of other people, that one of the reasons I asked you to do this episode was that in talking to parents over the last few months, so many parents didn't know what to do or who to call when their child had a problem. Yes. And so many of these kids are not just in high school, but on into college as well. And I know personally, we feel like we don't know what's going on always at the at the college level. And so I thought bringing you in here to talk about some of that and answer maybe a few questions that I have that other parents have expressed to me would be helpful to our listeners. Absolutely. You know, the, uh, the emotional journey does not end when one leaves high school. And in some respects, it's intensified when our students go uh, off to college or a university. And so I know that uh, I've seen that not only from an administrative perspective, but also from a personal perspective. As you all know, I have three kids of my own, uh, two that uh, recently uh, graduated from uh, college and one that's currently in college. So I see it firsthand every day. And I'm guessing that makes you an even better administrator and a, a supervisor over these types of, of programs at Rockhurst. I certainly hope so. I'm sure it does. So. <laughs> the proof is in the pudding, as they say. <laughs> well, I've been fortunate enough to know you and your mm. family for a long time, and I have mm. no doubt um, that you do a wonderful job. Could you just tell us a little bit about what you think has changed with students over the course of, of your career? You've been doing this for, for a couple of years, right? <laughs> Just about 33 years, to be exact, <laughs> um, which is kind of crazy to think about. I, I've been serving at Rockhurst for the past uh, 22 years, and Rockhurst is a Catholic Jesuit university in the heart of Kansas City. Um, and during that time, I would say that in some respects, nothing has changed. Um, and what I mean by that is we are emotional creatures, um, and I would imagine that some of the things that we see in our students today uh, were seen by our parents and grandparents, and in that respect, things have not changed. Um, on the other hand, I think everything has changed, and uh, when I contemplate that, what I what I really mean by that is we live in a world right now that is very divisive. Uh, we see that racially, politically, economically, um, where people just have a hard time relating to one another, communicating with one another. Uh, we see a lot of technological um, and communication uh, complication is probably what I would describe. Uh, we have inputs of information that are coming uh, to us from all different angles. And yet, uh, even though that communication's happening, we can feel so isolated. Um, and I, I think about the example of uh, even with some of our students, they might have a conflict with their roommate. And they're sitting, the two of them are sitting in their room maybe in different spaces within the room, and they'll be texting one another, <laughs> uh, texting each other information wow. or working through a conflict. And uh, so I, th I think there has been a change that has made um, 
what our sons and daughters and family members encounter just in society in general, but including a university or college setting to be pretty complicated and at points stressful. That is an interesting point, and I'd never thought about that, that that kids might be in a room like smaller than this one, and this isn't a very big room, but a lot of college dorm rooms aren't very big either, and they're texting each other as opposed to doing this, what we're doing, having a face-to-face conversation. Yeah, and and some of it is they're just not practiced at it. Um, So they've been used to communicating through uh, electronic means and maybe aren't as practiced at just doing that face-to-face with one another. What is your opinion on how that has affected <clears throat> the college student mental health piece? Hmm. Hmm. Well, when I, uh, when I think about what I've seen and observed uh, during my time Uh, As a university administrator, increasingly I see students that feel isolated, uh, that are experiencing issues of anxiety and just tremendous amounts of stress, Uh, and then uh, also at points uh, that that sense of depression, sadness, um, that sometimes kind of flows out of those two circumstances. so I, I see it. I see it all. Um, there are some students that um, have learned tools and have resources and have support systems that help them to kind of navigate that really well. And then there's others that uh, struggle with that. I sent you an article that hmm. I read um, in the last couple of weeks. And it wasn't an isolated article. I kept seeing article after article um, that said similar findings that around 60% of college students in 2022, so presently, are saying that they're struggling with some kind of mental health issue. Mm -hmm. That was a staggering figure to me. Mm. 60%. So what would you say to that? Uh, I would, I would first say, uh, is that high enough Mm. in some respects? And I I think some of it is how do we define struggle? Um, when I think about struggle, quite honestly, I think part of the, the human journey involves struggle. Uh, it's how we learn, it's how we grow, uh, and life throws a lot of twists and turns our way. Uh, I think more of the issue ends up being, um, does the person that is going through that struggle, sometimes it's normal developmental Um, stages that a student is going through. Sometimes it's pressures and circumstances that come at them, either at the university or forces outside the university. Um, But are they equipped to kind of navigate those particular challenges? And are they resourced with people and strategies in their lives in order to kind of come out on the other side of it? you know, at, at a place of health and, and growth and well-being. I guess I'm really surprised that you think that 60% might not even be high enough. And is that different than it was 20 years ago? Well, I, uh, I struggled to answer that question a bit, and here's my struggle. I think that uh, over the course of the last 10 years in particular, I feel like uh, students and society in general has become more open about their mental and emotional journeys. And so is it a case where the struggle has really kind of gone up? Or is it a case where we're being more transparent with one another about that struggle and asking for help around that struggle? and offering support uh, in that struggle with one another. So 
um, yeah, that's uh, you've presented a, a challenging question there that I'm not sure I have a great answer to. Well, I don't think there's probably a lot of answers to some of these <laughs> questions, but I think these are the things that as parents, right, we sit around and we think, well, gosh, you know, when I back when I was in college, I don't remember these things being what they are now. And, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, to your point. But I do think it's a good thing that people are talking more about it. Students are talking more about what their mental health issues are and their needs and asking for help. Is that the common experience that you have with students that they are vocal about it? They say, you know, I'm struggling with this. I need some help. Or is that the more of the, the minority situation? It probably depends on the context that you find yourself in. Um, as I think about uh, my experience, uh, particularly at a Catholic Jesuit university, we have a lot of conversation with one another about what are our institutional values, one of those being cura personalis, which is care of the whole person. You know, so that's a real starting place for a lot of the conversations that we have with one another on campus. Um, well beyond that, um, I, I also think it depends on what are the other resources or uh, communities that exist within the space that your student might be in. For example, uh, at Rockhurst, we are so fortunate to have a group called Active Minds, and I think you've had some exposure to them as, as well as Will. Um, but Active Minds is a national organization. We have a local chapter at Rockhurst that's very active. Um, and really what they're all about is decreasing stigma uh, related to being open about one's challenges and really reducing the stigma of help-seeking. Um, our local Active Minds chapter just had, they have an annual event called Be the Light, where three students, and I would say pretty high-profile students, shared their journey, uh, shared, talked about their struggles, uh, you know, and um, along with that, some of the decisions that they made for themselves, decisions that they regret, as well as decisions that in the end allowed them to be at a healthier place. Um, not a perfect place because it's an ongoing journey for them. Uh, but um, so having having core values at a university, having resources that are a part of the university life can make a big difference in students navigating things successfully. Well, that leads well into my next question, which is what steps are institutions such as yours and others that you may be aware of taking to meet the massive hmm. mental health needs that are being presented right now? Yes. Well, counseling centers have been uh, a long uh, staple of university and college life um, for most or many universities. Uh, they're set up in different ways. Um, I can share that at my particular university, uh, we have a couple of doctoral level licensed psychologists as well as one pre-doctoral intern. Uh, their schedules are full. Mm. Um, you can connect with them uh, not only in person, but virtually, if that ends up That's being nice. a more convenient or safer option for you. Uh, so that, you know, certainly that's the initial go-to. Um, it's expensive um, in terms of uh, staffing a counseling center, as well as just finding uh, people that are qualified and committed to that work. I, I describe our psychologists as the unsung heroes mm -hmm. of the university because so much of their work happens behind a closed door mm -hmm. uh, within the, the shroud of confidentiality. Uh, beyond that, 
the way that I think about a university is it just doesn't rest solely on a counseling center, but there's a multitude of other resources that are deployed to uh, help be connected and engaged with students and ultimately to accompany them or journey with them. So residence life staff, if your student lives on campus, uh, campus ministry, if you end up going to a, a religiously or faith-affiliated school. Um, we ended up several years ago making the decision to set up what we call student success coaches. So these are individuals that uh, have mental health psychological training, uh, but their intent is to really kind of proactively reach out to different students and student groups that historically have encountered a number of different barriers, for example, first-generation mm -hmm. students or students of color. And the student success coaches um, are available to every student at Rockhurst. But if you don't need therapy necessarily, but you need somebody just to join with you in thinking about some of the decisions you're making, um, some of the challenges that you're facing, they are also kind of a safe place for our students to go. So, um, so I, I would say from a staffing perspective, um, we think about this kind of holistically in many respects and not just a, you need to go to therapy and that's the answer. That sounds like a great program. Do a lot of other colleges and universities have something like that? The student success coaching, I, I messed up the no, title, no. but no, that's, that's great. really cool. Um, I would say we were on the front end of that. I, as you look at different colleges and universities, I see a growing number of student success coaches that are um, being invested in uh, by university administration. Um, in many respects, I think about them almost as a life coach, and mm -hmm. all of us can <laughs> benefit from, from life coaches, but one that specializes in the college and university uh, environment and at points can I think feel a little bit more accessible in terms of just stopping by and connecting with your coach versus having to schedule an appointment per se. Sure. I want to hone in on something that you said about um, the counseling and the counselors. You said uh, the shroud of privacy. Mm. Is that what you said? Something like that. Mm -hmm. Shroud of confidentiality. I've had several conversations with different parents and parents have expressed their frustration with their, and I have in air quotes, adult children who are often in college, on college campuses and might be struggling. The parents might not know it. Um, I've heard some pretty extreme examples of some pretty serious stuff happening and the parents having no idea, uh, even hospitalizations. Again, parents have no idea. I don't know what the right answer to that is, but I know that if it were my child, I would want to know. What What would you say to that? Like, I, I, I know it's got to be a, a tough position for the administration to be in, but if you know that, that there's a kid who's really in trouble... And you can't call their parents. I mean, how does that how does that work? How do you navigate that? Another easy question that you've <laughs> <laughs> shared with me. You're in the hot seat. <laughs> so I've lived both sides of this, right? As an administrator and as a parent that deeply cares about my my kids. And administrators deeply care about their students, and I think sometimes that can get lost in things. A couple of things that come to mind for me as I consider that question. Number one, there's the legalities of things. And so uh, you've probably heard of FERPA, and many parents have. Um, 
but FERPA puts a lot of limitations on administrators in terms of what we can share. And even if there is a FERPA release form that is signed by a student, that doesn't necessarily obligate an administrator to make contact with those that are listed on the FERPA form. Um, and I think there's sometimes an expectation that, listen, we had a FERPA on file. Why didn't you call me? Um, likewise, there are exceptions for FERPA in terms of if somebody's uh, going to potentially harm themselves or another person. And our psychologists and counselors in our counseling centers also have that that lever that they can pull in terms of uh, reaching out and asking for the help of family members or others to assist an individual that may be suicidal or homicidal or threatening others. Um, so there, there is some room to navigate there. What I think the, the advice that I would have to offer parents and students is number one, I see one of the mistakes that I see some students making is they've struggled with anxiety and depression through high school. They want to turn kind of a new page in their life. And so they just want to show up on campus and be anonymous in terms of uh, not being known as the kid that has depression or anxiety. Um, and we even have some students that end up stepping back from therapy, stepping back from taking their medication. And that kind of approach, in my view, really kind of is a bit of a setup. And it's, it's not good for the student, it's not good for the family, and it's not good for the university. Uh, so I really want to encourage students that have a mental health history and their families when they're engaging with the university, especially during that, maybe it's not during orientation, maybe it's before orientation <laughs> mm -hmm. or a couple of weeks after orientation, I would encourage before. But sitting down and having a conversation, maybe with somebody from the counseling center or maybe somebody from the dean of students office and, and say, here's, here's been my journey to date Here's what seems to really work for me in terms of me being able to take care of myself. Here might be some signs that things are kind of going off the rails for me. And here's, here's my plan if things aren't moving in a good direction. And I think having that kind of conversation collectively between university staff, the student, and parent or family member can really set set everybody up collectively for success. And there's kind of a, a shared approach. I wish I had asked you this question a year and a half ago. <laughs> because you, you would think that we would have like done all of that. Mm. And we didn't. And, you know, we sent Will to college in a hyperly anxious state and I, you know i'm like golly what were we thinking and it wasn't like he hadn't been dealing with us for a while and so i boy this is going to be the sound bite that i'm going to play over and over from this <laughs> from this episode is if you're sending a kid to college have that conversation not only with your kid but with the university and to have a team approach well, I want to encourage uh, you not to beat yourself up. <laughs> uh, as as a as a parent, I think all of us are uh, continuing to learn a lot uh, around this parental journey, uh, and you're not uh, alone uh, in that. Certainly, you're sitting across the table from somebody that's still learning a lot. Um, I I would say too that some some of this dynamic between the university, the student, um, and the parents or family members can be uh, driven by the particular philosophy of the university. 
So for example, as an administrator, I, uh, I default to the idea that parents and family members are our partners. And they're important partners in helping the student to find and live wellness and health in their lives. And in most circumstances, we want them to be involved. So for example, if we're just getting ready to um, take a student over to a local hospital to be evaluated with the idea that it's probably likely they'll be admitted, uh, we will look for the opportunity to pick up the phone to the family and say, this is what's happening. Here's the options. Um, and um, how can we work together to benefit the student that's sitting right next to me? Uh, so again, how do we get on the same page with one another? Um, there are some rare circumstances, but they're very real. Uh, where we have some families that the family itself is one of the drivers behind the mental health condition, uh, especially uh, issues of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, where um, making contact with the family would actually be contrary to uh, the professional recommendation of psychologists and therapists involved, as well as I would contend even uh, anti-ethical. You said something that I want to go back to, and you said at your university, this is your approach. My guess is that that's not the approach of a lot of different schools across the country, so what a, what should a parent really expect? Um, what you're saying or, you know, the opposite, which is they're never going to hear anything. I mean, what you, you have colleagues all over the country. I'm sure you probably share information um, with other people in, in your positions. What, what would you say to that question? You know, again, I can't uh, speak for everybody, but I would say that the majority of colleagues that I interact with have more of a similar position to what I've shared than a different one. Um, you know, I've I've long uh, made the statement that uh, if if somebody's going to sue me, I would rather them sue me for reaching out to parents because I'm concerned about the welfare. Uh, of their son or daughter than not reaching out for help and the student doing something to themselves. So the, the first objective, uh, and I think it's a shared sense and commitment, is, um, yes, you know, we're all interested in having students be successful in the classroom but it foundationally needs to start with people being safe and people being well. And if that's not happening, who really cares about the classroom? That is so true. And I've had so many conversations with parents and professionals alike. Like if, if you're not okay, none of the other stuff really matters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it doesn't matter that you're not showing up to class or it doesn't matter that you're getting all D's. It's just, yeah, it's so immaterial at that point. But it's a profound struggle because I find that our students that are maybe struggling emotionally and mentally, um, as we interface with them and interface with their parents, one of the first questions that I get is, you know, well, how is this going to impact their, mm. their classroom and um, academic journey? Yeah. And it's an important question to consider, but it's not necessarily the question for the moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think one of the worries that many parents and families have is, okay, if, if I pull my kid out to be impatient, um, receive inpatient services for a week or two, or do intensive outpatient 
you know, what will that do in terms of uh, the university's interest in seeing my son or daughter or family member kind of through? And um, at least my experience has been time and time again where if if the person is so kind of far behind in a class, you know, you always have the option to do a medical withdrawal, which shows up typically as a W on your transcript. Um, and some universities will have a process where you can request even a, a partial refund for the semester based upon withdrawal of individual courses or the full set of courses. I would say the majority of time, at least in my experience, the student can receive the care and treatment that they need while continuing with their courses. And so uh, what's important is not only how do we transition the student to get that care outside of the university, but how do we transition them effectively back into the environment um, with a plan uh, that everybody's agreed to that makes sense for the student. That's an excellent point. And I, I guess, you know, my initial reaction was, oh my gosh, you know, school doesn't really matter when you're at that point because of what I've personally been through with my own son. So for someone who's listening who hasn't been through that, then yeah, that's not necessarily the first thought. I mean, yeah, you're thinking, oh my gosh, you're going to flunk out of school this semester and we're, we're going to lose all the money that we paid in tuition. And that's not necessarily the case. I've even, you know, we have three children as well. At least two of the schools that these children have attended have offered um, an insurance policy of sorts. I don't know if Rockers does that, but where you can buy this tuition refund insurance if a student were to have to withdraw for and I don't know if it has a stipulation of a medically necessary withdrawal or what, but I hadn't seen that until the last, I don't know, two or three years. And then they started coming through. And I was like, that's a good idea. And it's not very expensive. But if you do have to leave school for, you know, and, and maybe it ends up being a much longer uh, term or if it's a student with substance abuse, um, issues that it needs to go to a, a rehab that's significantly longer and they're not going to be able to finish a semester, then that could be an, a good alternative as well. Yes, I'm not aware of us offering it in particular. I have seen a number of other universities offer it, um, <laughs> given our own personal uh, journey. Uh, and I think it's just available more broadly as well. So you don't necessarily need to have it offered by the university. I think it's generally available. And if somebody wants kind of that, in a sense, that security of knowing that, um, okay, this is going to be particularly challenging for my family member to go go to the university, um, it may be one way to kind of protect yourselves sure. financially. Yeah. When you have a parent who is concerned about a college student, have you had those parents call you personally and say, hey, I want you to know I'm really concerned about Johnny and this is why? Tell me about that, what you as a university administrator do with that information, the conversations that you have with parents. Yep. So um, I have received uh, a number of those calls along the way. Uh, one thing that I want to clearly say is I would much rather have uh, an overly active parent that I end up hearing from more than maybe I need to hear from. <laughs> than having a parent that has just a disregard and is completely disengaged. So if you're going to err on one side, err on the side of engagement and communication. Typically, when I will get that kind of outreach, there's several places that that information will go. One is, uh, and 
Again, I don't think Rockhurst is unique in having this. We have what's called a student success team that meets once a week, meets every Monday, usually for a couple of hours, and it's comprised of individuals uh, that are kind of frontline folks from across the university. So you have representation from residence life, student life, counseling center, security, academic, the whole nine, athletics, the whole nine yards. The intent is to be able to take information like a phone call from a parent and say, okay, uh, this parent is concerned about their child. This is what they're observing. And um, what what is everybody else observing across the university? So in a sense, trying to think about it as a puzzle and what are the pieces that we might put together here, not arbitrarily, but that, you know, kind of makes sense. And then what is our action plan for follow-up? So typically asking the question, who has the relationship with the student? Uh, That might be the most natural and approachable person for, to engage with that particular student. Um, So that, that ends up being a really terrific resource. And so we get calls from parents. We get, uh, we have a um, email notification system built on different reports that, you know, just the other day I got in uh, a report from a faculty member that was concerned uh, about a student. So it was great to be able to take that email, pass it along to the folks that are leading the student success network. And I can be assured that there will be a signal check across the board in terms of what are others observing, hearing, uh, and then an action plan so that um, the parent taking the time to reach out to us isn't um, thrown into a dark chasm. Um, I would also say that if what the parent is saying to us is pretty significant, you know, where there's potential self-harm, harm to others, we will activate what's called a BIT team, which stands for Behavioral Intervention Team. That's a pretty common term amongst universities and colleges, and most should have them. Um, so when you're looking at a college or university as a parent and as a student, it's a good thing to ask about. Tell Tell Absolutely. me, do you have a bit team and, you know, how do they operate? But uh, that team would be responsible for evaluating um, what the next steps might need to be with the student in terms of information gathering and then potential intervention with that student. So, and in more significant situations like that, it would not be uncommon for us to get residence life staff involved or myself or someone from my office involved, a counselor involved, things like that. The ultimate hope would be, okay, let's get them over to the counseling center for a check-in and then an evaluation of whether or not a more thorough and detailed assessment needs to happen at a local hospital. I have never heard that term, the BIT team. Say the say that again. It's behavioral Be- behavioral intervention team. I've so, written a lot of tuition checks, and I've never heard that term. So yeah. I just learned something very BIT, valuable. Our BIT team is, you know, it's comprised uh, of myself. I lead it. Uh, our director of security, our provost is on it director of our counseling center and the person that oversees our residence life area and our person that oversees all of our student success efforts. So, um, so those are some of the folks that Mm -hmm. comprise our, uh, bit team. I personally am feeling much better about sending a child to college at this point, hearing all of these things. And I, I hope that when parents listen to this, that they're encouraged, not only that these systems and these structures are in place, 
but that you as an administrator say, hey, look, I care about your hmm. kid. I know that other administrators all across the country care about your kids and they want them to be okay. I, I think that's a great place to assume and default. At the same time, I would encourage your listeners to ask the question. So help me, you know, for students that are struggling uh, in terms of their mental health, what processes and resources do you have in place? And what role does parents or a family have in that process? And if things were to get really bad, um, what could we assume from the university? Uh, those are fair and reasonable questions. Those are three really good questions. Uh, again, should have had those a few years ago, but <laughs> now I do. So thanks. Um, if there's a, a high school student who, you know, like Will, well, we'll just use Will for an example because he's willing to be that example. You know, here's this kid with, you know, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, pretty, pretty well managed, but we know that these exist. We know that they're present. Would you recommend like that being a, a big consideration in terms of school choice when you're considering where to go to college or where to send your child to college, you know, having these conversations the senior year when, when you're making these visits around, um, tell me about what you've got in place. Just those, those big three questions. Like I, again, what would you say to parents of high school students who have mental health issues entering into this process? I would say a couple of things. Uh, the first thing uh, that I'm acutely aware of, and listen, I've invested 33 years of my life in, in higher education, and I firmly believe in its transformational power in, in students' lives uh, and how it equips them for the future. At the same time, I'm really mindful that some of the stereotypes affiliated with going to college are just that. They're stereotypes, and quite honestly, they're false at, at points. So, for example, we have this idea that going to college, this is going to be the best time of your life. And for a lot of our students, it's absolutely that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they really just flourish and... Um, make incredible friends and really just kind of the formation that you see in a student's life from their freshman year to their senior year is just amazing. And then for others, it can be such a stressful and difficult environment that if they have not learned some of the tools and resources and decision-making for themselves to be able to navigate some of the natural stress that comes uh, in being, especially a new student, um, you have to be careful about just not setting up uh, the student for potential failure. So for example, um, I have had parents reach out to me just saying, I would like you to make sure that my son uh, takes his meds on oh. a daily basis. Mm. <laughs> or I would like you to make sure that my daughter gets up for her class. Oh, I, seriously? I am not joking. Oh, wow. Okay. And if, if those are kind of needs that are being expressed, then I would say to the students and to the parents or family members, I'm not really sure if you're quite ready to be here right now. Even the most supportive environment, uh, you, can have, you can have a terrific set of staff, programs, and services, but if the student is not in a position to make great decisions for themselves that promote that and access those, then it's a bit of a setup. So what if I've taught my child how to wake him or herself up, <clears throat> hopefully, by the time um, he or she goes to college? 
I've taught the child to, to wake him or herself up. I've had the child be responsible for their medications. And the child goes to college and it's, it's still, it's just not great. What do you say to that? Well, what I would say to that is um, really kind of stepping back and asking the question, what, what is the plan for self-care? And uh, is the student um, exercising the plan for that self, self-care? And is the university, either through its programs and services or programs and services that are uh, in the surrounding area, so you have to think about where your college is at, and is it in the middle of a cornfield, or is it in a city where maybe services might be more um, accessible or available? Um, yeah. Is is there a plan, and uh, is the person... Uh, living out that plan of of self-care. And to that point, if if they do go to a school that's in a cornfield, let's say, <clears throat> and as my as I understand it, most colleges and universities uh, counseling centers are not set up to be long-term, counseling centers is that the way it is with rockhurst yeah i think some of it depends on what the demand levels look okay. like for the center there was a time that at rockhurst you could receive long-term therapy okay. we're no longer at that point and so uh i forget what our minimum session number is or maximum session number is i think it's around six or seven but when we're approaching that then there's a discussion of, okay, is further work needed? And if so, looking to refer outside the university. Okay. And so you th- would you say then based on the number of kids needing the service, that's why it cannot be an extended number of sessions at Rockhurst or just the model has changed? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Okay. Some of it is a capacity issue. Sure. Um, and then some of it is, um, how do we, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's plenty of dialogue going on right now amongst university administrators and counseling center directors across the nation in terms of, okay, how do we meet, uh, our students' mental health needs in an effective way? And, um... I think a lot of idea sharing, um, some of it depends upon the philosophy of the treatment provider in terms of what they believe to be effective uh, in a student's life. Um, I would say that I tend to see more of a uh, therapeutic approach that is shorter term in nature. Uh, And if there are more significant psychological issues that may have a, a longer runway, um, usually that's pretty readily available on the front end of things. And so I would imagine that that's a discussion that's happening early on in the therapy sure. um, at Rockhurst. Again, I'm not sure. privy to any of that right. because of confidentiality. Of course. it. it I, I asked this question because like Will has struggled in Virginia, finding a local therapist mm. because it's a small town and everybody's got a wait list and what and so the can thankfully the counseling center at the school has said, you know, if that's the case, then we'll we'll work with you on that. And I don't know. I mean, my guess is that most universities and colleges are not going to say, "Gosh, good luck to you, then, kid. I hope you can figure something out." There, the, the schools are going to work with the students as best they can to get them the help they need. Yeah, there'll there'll certainly be an ethical and professional commitment that way. And at some universities, kind of well beyond that, you know, based upon values. Um, I I would say that um, I, I think there's a lot of times that students and their families think about therapy as it, this is going to be once a week. And it's, there's going to be a total of 12 sessions. <laughs> right. And when you're at the end of the 12 sessions, you know, you've hit nirvana. Yeah. <laughs> and um, 
each individual is so unique. And so, you know, we have, yes, we have students that are maybe being seen twice a week because they're going through a really bad rough patch. But we have a lot of other students that are being seen once every two weeks or once a month. Um, And so there's there's the professional recommendation of the therapist. There's also the preference of the student in terms of how they might engage with therapy. We also, um, Rockhurst annually through the, the gift of um, some donations from alumni, um, we have a, uh, an app. It's called San Velo. And San San Velo uh, is at a a lot of other colleges and universities, but it's a daily app where you as a student, it's also available to our faculty and staff. It kind of checks in on you. Wow. How how are you feeling today? And then based upon your responses, it will make recommendations to you, including um, it provides some resources like... uh, meditation, (laughs) uh, relaxation, things like that. And so uh, something like San Velo is not going to replace a therapist, but San Velo is intended to reinforce what's being learned in therapy and then potentially can extend the amount of time between appointments that a student is having. That's a really... That's a really cool thing. I've never heard of that. San Velo. San Velo. And the universities themselves have to use it. An individual can't like Google it and download it or. They can certainly Google it. Um, I'm not sure if they're able to download it as okay. an individual or not. Uh, we we pay a flat fee and all of our students and faculty and staff are included in it. Well, that's great. It sounds like a good thing for checks and balances too. I mean, just as a daily reminder, even, okay, I'm feeling a little anxious today. I need to do this. Yeah. It's, I think there's a validating feature to it and it it also allows someone to be reflective and uh, discerning in terms of, okay, what's going on for me right now Mm -hmm. in my heart, in my head. And Based upon what I'm reporting, I'm going to get some feedback that may indicate to me that, you know, I I'm, I may need to check in with my counselor. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not be a fix of I need to do some relaxation techniques here. That is great. Well, I'll, I'm going to look into that and see if, if uh, individuals can use that. And if so, I'll put it in the show notes because that sounds like a valuable resource. What other resources do you know of that are available to college students or their parents, just generally speaking for mental health? There, uh, there is a program that uh, our university has been exposed to, but I just, I don't think it's unique to Missouri or whatnot, but it's called ask, listen, refer. And it is uh, a training that anybody can take, but uh, it it basically equips and empowers people to um, pay attention to not only themselves, but the people around them uh, and ultimately be able to identify, okay, there's something going on in this person's uh, life. I have some questions that I I should, as their friend or as their family member, should be asking them. Uh, I need to listen attentively and then based upon what I'm hearing from them, make some referrals. So uh, I would say that that's uh, one uh, resource. Um, Many people, I don't think, really pay attention to what is offered maybe through their health insurance plans as, as a resource. So, for example, at Rockhurst, um, we offer a university-sponsored health insurance plan for our students, and it's part of the Blue Cross Blue Shield network. And uh, they have a particular program that started, I think, actually during the pandemic called Mindful that anybody can, uh, that's a 
um, affiliated with the plan can pick up the phone and they talk to a healthcare trained professional. And then based upon what they're sharing with that person, we'll get hooked into uh, whatever kind of um, medical or health-related resource that they need. Um, certainly the National Suicide uh, Hotline uh, number that's recently been published is uh, a great <laughs> uh, a great tool, although I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, I can't remember it, but I bet you know it. I do. It's 988. There we go. <laughs> and it is great because... And I didn't know this until a few months ago. You don't have to be in a crisis or you don't have to have a loved one in a crisis to call. Hmm. You know, like say you're a college student and you've got a friend who you're like, I am really worried about about her. I can call that number and say, hey, I've got this friend. Here's what I'm seeing. And then that person on the other end will advise you how to help your friend or what resources to get your friend to. I think that's amazing. Yes. So. I, w- I would agree, and I've I've learned something more about it. So well, that's good, good for one. me to know. Um, this has been really, really educational. Um, all puns intended. <laughs> Sorry, uh, and informative for me, and I I have no doubt that it will be for um, the listeners. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to to mention or or talk about before we wrap things up? Well, I, I would say from an administrative perspective, there are times that when a student is navigating a difficult mental health situation that um, what, what sometimes gets lost in the interaction between family members and the student and the administration is the key importance of people being safe and people being healthy. And that's, that's got to be the starting point. And if you're not hearing that theme from a college or university that you're considering, then you, you should think twice. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm proud of the work that our team does in terms of we have a really high success rate of being able to accompany students through some of their mental health challenges and ultimately sit at graduation or commencement and watch them go across the stage. Um, And uh, as a human being, I find myself just incredibly inspired by them um, and I've seen that in Will. I see that in you and your husband, Dan, uh, where uh, just a great sense of respect uh, and inspiration by the courage that you all have um, navigated. Uh, and I get to see that repeated um, in the lives of our students and their families as they kind of go through that process, maybe over a three or four year period, sometimes five, um, if, if they had more extended treatment, but, um, yeah. So as, as a university administrator, yes, I take a lot of pride in that person completing their degree, but the greater gratitude is, uh, that they're at a healthier place and, uh, yeah. And I can imagine that feeling as you were talking about that, I was just picturing, you know, a, a student walking across the graduation stage and you thinking, wow, I'm so happy for that student that he or she was able to work through, get the tools they need to be able to move on with their lives and do whatever it is that that they're called to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, what an amazing feeling that must be. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes me really happy. It's <laughs> good stuff. Matt Quick, Dr. Matt Quick. Thank- Susie Gurley. <laughs> and there's no doctor there. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been invaluable. Um, 
this is invaluable information. This has been a great conversation, and I really look forward to sharing it uh, with the listeners. So I really appreciate you being on this episode Mm. of Just a Mom. It's been a great privilege. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.